Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to email us, science at newstalk.com or you can text us for 30 cent 53106. Now, in 2021, on a mountaintop at 1,600 feet above ground, a 27-year-old man underwent an emergency appendectomy. At this height, your body experiences a totally different atmosphere. There's less oxygen, less pressure, and really we know very little about anesthesia and how it might work in these conditions. But there is a benefit, it seems, to preparing the body for operations at high altitudes. Uh, here to tell us a little bit more about it is uh, our guest. He is Professor Phil Jakeman, Professor of Sport and Exercise Sciences at the University of Limerick. Welcome to the programme, Phil. Many thanks for having me. So um, when we talk about high altitudes and, and preparing a body or cha- having the body change, take us through the, the differences that, that happen to, to a body when it is exposed to high altitudes, please. Okay. Well, the, the, the principal function for high altitude in uh, certainly in athletic performance is to try and eke out a marginal gain in the overall rate in which you can transfer oxygen down to the respiring tissues and thereby maintain a very high metabolic rate. At high altitude, the amount of oxygen in the air is reduced, and that's in proportional to the height that you ascend. The principle of producing energy is that you use that oxygen to burn a fuel. The rate at which you use oxygen is therefore proportional to how much energy you can get. So clearly, if you're compromised by the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere, then the peak rates at which you can produce energy is reduced. And that's principally what happens when you're exposed to altitude. And so why is that beneficial uh, if you're training for a competitive sport like a marathon or, or running, for example? Okay. The reduction in oxygen is known as hypoxia. And there are several hypoxic sensitive genes. So when you expose yourself to altitude, you instigate a change in these genes, which then make an adaptation. And the adaptation is principally there to help you defend against your next um, exposure to hypoxia. But of course- Are you saying, it, it, is, is that an immune response or um, what sort of a response is that? Are, are you saying different genes are expressed as a result of having ox- less oxygen for an extended period of time? Correct. Correct. And those genes, of course, are trying, as I said, to prepare you so that the next time you're challenged with that, you no longer suffer quite so much. So the classic syndromes of going to altitude, shortness of breath, fatigue, headaches, etc. And all those have a physiological basis. By exposure to altitude, you accommodate to those changes and therefore feel better and able to perform better. Of course, the benefit to the athlete is that when they then return back to normal sea level, they get an augmented increase in their capacities. And that's the basis of altitude exposure for endurance training. How do we know uh, about this gene expression? How how, um, did we discover that and and how long have we known about it? We've known about it quite a long time because uh, you probably your listeners will be very familiar with the blood doping that goes on in sport. And principally, blood doping is the ability to try and increase the blood's capacity to, ch- to carry oxygen. And it induces an increase in a, a hormone 
called erythropoietin or EPO, so the EPO effect. What that's trying to do basically is to increase the number of red blood cells. And it's within the blood cells which carry the oxygen and therefore enhance your capacity to deliver the oxygen to burn those fuels which require for a high rate of energy expenditure. Right. And is this an effect that we see immediately after a week of, of exposure to high altitude, after three weeks? It depends really on your starting basis. In the athlete, they're looking for marginal gains because they're already well developed. So their exposure has to be for an increased period of time. An acute exposure will elicit a response within five, six hours. But the magnitude of the response and the prolongation of that response obviously then induces a more adaptive response. So you need to be for much longer than just a day or six hours. Athletes will take something like 28 days of exposure. It can be achieved, sorry, the magnitude of their effect is going to be greater the lower the starting base they, they come into that exposure. That's principally how we've approached this study. Right, so if you're in Amsterdam and you travel to Nepal, um, and you and then you do your, your base training in, in in the peaks of Nepal, you're going to have a very significant um, benefit to your ability to to burn fuel uh, and increase your metabolic rate. But but surely there is um, a negative to exposing yourself to high altitude. I mean, uh, isn't less oxygen bad for us? Uh, what about the, the lack in pressure? Does that have an effect on our physiology? Only in that it, it um, forces the survival challenge to you. So you try to adapt to accommodate to it. And of course, the, the key thing here, Jonathan, is that everybody is individual. And the heterogeneity of response, the difference between people is massive in the exposure to a hypoxic challenge. Right. So you and I might be able to go up to quite a moderate altitude, say 5,000 meters, and have only marginal effects. Other people may have major effects only at 2,000, 2,500 meters. So really there's some influences there, and this clouds everything we do in human and human science research, is that heterogeneity of response. I, I presumably that is, is mostly a genetic a difference um, in nature? <laughs> I'd love to be able to uh, answer that uh, definitively. I can't. All I can say is that when you have uh, a comparison, for instance, to high altitude na natives, the, the Sherpa population, for instance, you see a totally different response in their physiology than you do to the lowlanders. Okay, so um, we can see the benefit for someone about to run a marathon, but that seems to me the exact opposite uh, to someone who's about to undergo surgery. Why on earth are we looking at patients and apoxia? Okay. The, the whole body has to respond to the surgical trauma. And the way it responds, of course, is in, in support of uh, wound healing, tissue remodeling, uh, defense of the inflammatory response, and hopefully not, but also to infection. All those processes require an increase in energy expenditure. So there's a major increase in energy expenditure post-surgery. The ability to defend that increase in energy expenditure resides within your aerobic capacity, your fitness, as it were. So it's been known for some time that those people who are more fit, aerobically fit, when they come into surgery, don't have the same degree of complications, post-surgical traumas, and of course outcomes, than those people who are less fit. Okay, so, so that's interesting. 
Um, and it makes sense, of course. However, how practical is it to expose people to 1,600 feet worth of, uh, of, of altitude ahead of what is presumably, uh, you know, an important surgery that they, they need to get? I mean, you hardly have an OR at the top of Carantool. Not that Carantool would be, would be even high enough, right? <laughs> the, the, the term the uh, clinical population uses prehabilitation. Right. So prehabilitation is, is really a, a multidisciplinary concept. What we're trying to give here is support from the healthcare interventions. These may include exercise. Exercise would stimulate the response. It could include nutritional guidance. It could include psychological guidance and and, uh, in order to defend against the psychological trauma of going under under the knife, as it were. So, So what we're trying to do here really is say, well, look, some people are physically incapable of exercise. So exercise may not be the vehicle Mm. from which we can give this prehabilitation. It's, it's rather like an exercise pill in some ways. If you don't have to exercise, but you can still get the same benefits, then maybe altitude prehabilitation, a very novel modality, underpinned by the physiological responses that we wish to induce, could be a way in which a certain category of patients could marginally improve their ability to defend against a, a, a coming operation. So that's a, a great idea in theory, but um, one would imagine quite difficult to test in, in, in practice. Uh, um, and even um, sending patients to uh, high altitude places also seems extremely impractical and, and not great on the whole um, climate change thing aside. So h- how on earth do you um, provide this in a practical way to patients? Okay, it'd be lovely for everybody to get a nice trip to altitude and yeah. maybe even do a bit of skiing beforehand, etc. And of course, that's what happens. But now, in this practical sense, um, what we have here and what uh, we've engaged in is basically an altitude house. And what this altitude house does is that it vents into the rooms low oxygen atmospheres. It doesn't take you up to altitude. Right. So this is not what you call a hypobaric. We're not taking you to a lower pressure to tell altitude. We're simulating the altitude exposure just by reducing the oxygen tension in the rooms. Wow. The facility we've got here is very unique because it's residential for starters. You can live here and we can actually manipulate each room. We can control each room independent to the subject. So I come back to the heterogeneity bit again the difference in response. If your requirement is to go to 5,000 meters, my requirement is to go to 2,000 meters, we can accommodate to that. Wow. And so... In you know, UL? Absolutely, yeah. That's amazing. So um, th- this is like a, a... Presumably it's some sort of hermetically sealed room because you need to <laughs> to monitor the, the oxygen perfectly, right? So these are, um, these are difficult rooms to to get food into or uh, just describe uh, what no, it looks like for me. No, they're, they're normal houses. The normal houses are not hermetically sealed at all. Um, what you do, if you think of a ventilation system in a house, if you were doing an air, air-induced air ventilation, you'd have grills in the room, wouldn't you, which would pump air in and exchange air. So that's happening all the time in the house. What we're pumping into each individual room, however, could be a different oxygen concentration. So room one can have this, the kitchen can have the other, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So the common living areas are held at an altitude of fifteen hundred meters, wow. because at fifteen hundred meters you don't have any uh, deleterious effects from a hypoxic stimulus. You can defend against that. Everybody can do that. The rest of the rooms, the sleeping rooms, 
are independently um, moderated depending on what kind of condition you want to create to the person or the athlete. Okay, so there we have seven, eight individual rooms in that particular manner. So that's that's how it works. So you have a house with um, with rooms in it that are simulating different mountain peaks for for the patients in terms of the uh, oxygen that's in there to yeah. help them get a physiological response that makes them fit enough to prepare for surgery. What 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 results have you gotten from this study? Uh, or, or have you got results yet? Oh yes, we, we the the study was set up with the University of Oxford. Uh, the University of Oxford have a real track record in hypoxic research. Really? One of the researchers there won the Nobel Prize for one of the uh, for the identification of the master regulator to hypoxic challenges. So they were very well prepared, and they approached us to use this facility. And this was a hospital based approach. So these were clinical people who were using effectively a triage of assessing a person's exercise capacity, their aerobic capacity, as an indicator as to whether they were suitable for the operation. If they were not, then they would go into the community to get habilitated prior to operation because, of course, the outcome is dependent on their entry point and what the condition is and what they were entering. So you're saying that there are some operations where patients are required to have a certain level of uh, uh, anaerobic fitness to be able to safely undergo or, or um, I suppose, to get the best outcome for that patient. And they're yeah. essentially told to either get fit or, or, or get that um, ability to burn oxygen. And, and they then go into this, this uh, sort of big brother house of yours to, um, <laughs> to, to get less oxygen to, to get to that level of fitness. It's amazing. Yeah, it's... it's um... The, the paradigm is very similar to what we do with athletes. If we want to assess exactly how well an altitude or an hypoxic training program is working, we have to evaluate the physiological function in the first place. So we do that. So we have uh, assessments of the physiological function and biomarkers related to hypoxia. Okay, so we measure those at the start. We measure them through the program of habituation. And then we measure them in the adaptation when they finish. So that gives us an evidence-based. And, and do you see a good change in, in those patients? Well, well, firstly, the, the, the clinical evidence for the use of this uh, triage of the assessment of the patient is that those people who have a certain um, value through these tests do much better than those who do not. Right. And that's a pretty powerful argument to make to say, well, look, you are less at risk from this operation if you're in this state than if you were previously. There's the prehabilitation. Mm. So what we're trying to do here is firstly assess their, their risk, if you like, and that's the triage. So we do a um, standard test of all the bloods, and then we do an exercise test. And what the exercise does is to ramp up the demand and see how the subjects respond. And we have a couple of figures to be Above the threshold whereby the risk is lessened, you have to have a peak or a maximum value somewhere around 15, and you have to have a submaximal value somewhere around 11. Okay, so on the basis of that, you are then counseled okay, as to how you should proceed. If you're right. greater than that, you would normally proceed without any further. If you're less than that, probably be a good advice if you can to delay and come in better prepared next time. And that's when the supportive teams comes in. That's when the rehabilitative teams comes in. And, and so um, this process you found helps 
patient outcomes or uh, or at least you know from your work that it it helps them reach that value yeah i mean the, the one of the one of the key things you find in uh, perioperative medicine is that people who have low uh, blood hemoglobin this is anemia don't do as well as people who have better uh, hemoglobin and the reason for that is of course that uh, the hemoglobin is the main oxygen transporter you've got to get that oxygen to these cells therefore the better capacity you have to transport it that's yeah. better and the second thing is of course there's, there's always a blood loss in in operation so it sort of compounds the fact so the advance of this study showed us that the hypoxic stimulus we gave them which was very mild induced the erythropoietin response which induced a greater amount of hemoglobin hmm. there was greater than 70% in erythropoietin in one week which is quite remarkable and a 1.5 13% increase in hemoglobin concentration that translates to an oxygen delivery load equivalent to that at rest an increased oxygen delivery load uh, at rest that's really quite uh, uh, quite encouraging yeah it's very very exciting absolutely fascinating research phil jakeman from the university of limerick thank you very much for your time my pleasure future proof with jonathan mccray proudly supported by science foundation ireland sundays from midday on news talk